was The Smiths with a track called Pretty Girls Make Graves. This is David Eastall and this is The C86 Show. Welcome to my world. Once again, I'll be bringing you songs you know, some you don't, and some you should. And as always, I'll be going to be crossing time, space and genre with the finest in indie pop from the golden decade that was the 80s. As always, we'd like a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of Jeff Taylor from Leeds bass band Age of Chance. So I'll be bringing you that interview throughout the show, plus the usual award-worthy playlist. But because we're feeling rather excited about the Age of Chance, I thought we should start with their chart-topping song. This is Kiss. You don't have to be Prince if you want to dance. You just have to get down with the age of chance. You don't have to be beautiful, rich, handsome, or strong. You just have to use a brain cell and tell right Just leave it all up to 
the amazing sounds of the field mice and a track called Emma's House and that came from their 1989 album Snowball and I will be having a feature and a special on the field mice very soon because I caught up with one of the members just before Christmas anyway that came out on the amazing Sarah Records and before that we had all the way from Leeds the Age of Chance and their top chart topping song Kiss which came out in 1987 he says very excitedly well you know being a bit um, it doesn't take much for me to start hyperventilating and uh, obviously that was one of those classic tracks that we loved anyway this is David Esau this C86 show and this week's special guest is Age of Chance because I caught up with one of the members Jeff Taylor well, months and months ago, but I've had a bit of a backlog. So that interview will be coming at you really soon. And um, also, I'll be telling you how to get in touch with me if you so want to. Um, anyway, this next track goes out to David and Rachel all the way in Australia. This is, well, I was feeling a bit like, um, you know, that sort of crossover with kind of, I don't know, dance, indie stuff. And this is Big Audio Dynamite. And, and uh, come on, this every beatbox. This while I play for you know, a brand new musical biscuit. <laughs> I hope you realize you're playing that. This time I bet you it's bad.
Yes, I know, what a sound. That was Daniela Dax and the track called Cat House. What is she doing now? I have tried to uh, track her down and contact her because I'd love to do a special, but so far nothing has happened. Anyway, never mind. And before that we had Big Audio Dynamite and the track called Come, in, Come On Every Beatbox and that was from their 1987 album number 10 up in street this is david east on the c86 show if you want to contact me we do love your messages you can via facebook or twitter go to at c86 show and i will be there and it's always very nice to hear from you anyway this week's special guest is Ada chance i caught up with jeff taylor just after the summer and uh, found out more about life love and poetry in a 80s band anyway well probably not actually but um this is a single i went out and bought as soon as i heard it this is don't get mad get even
so much drama, so much excitement. That was Age of Chance and Don't Get Mad, Get Even. This is David Eastall on the C86 Show. And this is going to be the first part of my interview that I had with Jeff Taylor from the band when I asked him about how it all came into fruition. What happened was, I was in Leeds doing a degree at the Art College. And um, when that finished, I was, I really was wanting to, you know, get a band together. But didn't really have too many musician friends or anything. And I started looking around, you know, ads and stuff. But, you know, it was all the usual stuff you'd get, you know. And um, nothing really took. I'd, I met a couple of people, I think, before then. And then I walked into a music shop that used to be in the centre of town back then. Quite a famous place called Shearer's. And there was a kind of an unusual looking advert that, um, you know, uh, kind of requiring other people to get involved with it. I think it was it, it advertised itself as we. Right. So there was more than one person. I've got, I've actually got it somewhere. And um, but it never mentioned music at all. It was quite mysterious. So I, th- I took it. I remember taking it off the notice board <laughs> and taking it home. And um, anyway, I went down. To, I made. I phoned the number on it, and it was Steve who was living with his mum at the time. I think Steve had just left school. Yeah. And um, I arranged to meet these two guys, and it turned out they used to do a, like a kind of an occasional club night called the Upzone in Leeds, which I'd been to um, in the premises where they later um, got back to basics together. Mm-hmm. And it was a kind of a multi, uh, you know, like um, a kind of a, a cutting edge kind of, uh, you know, very much a mashup of different music going on in there, electronics, punk rock. Yeah. So, and uh, I didn't know either of them, but recognised them. And um, it turned out with that advert that they put it, or I think Neil had done it and put it in that music shop over a year before and didn't get one taker. So they gave up on it. And I think Neil got a job in London for a year. Yeah. Went away, did a job, whatever that was came back completely forgotten all about the advert and along comes me and that was uh that would have been in 1982 and uh that's how we got together mm-hmm. and there were three there were three three of us initially it's me neil and steve uh we used to rehearse around at neil's parents uh like a you know the house was actually above a sweet shop so that was handy for the sweets <laughs> um and we had a drum machine as i remember it was like a, a 606, the one that all the like, Sisters of Mercy and that you used. I think it was that anyway. Yeah. Um, we had a Wasp synthesizer. Okay. And uh, we just used to kind of chug away in there for a bit. And then that that happened for a few months. And then Jan, who I was at college with, um, we kind of got the idea together of using real drums. And, and anyway, she jumped in. And we played the first gig in uh, March 1983. Right, because I've sort of put down in my own little way that 83 was the probably the start of indie pop. I put it down because of the Smiths' first album, and I always think that was kind of the ground zero. I mean, I'm up to sort of, you know, being negotiated on that, but obviously you were there at the very beginning of the kind of indie explosion, really, weren't you? I guess so, yeah, but, you know, the, I suppose prior to that, you it segued into really, like, post-punk, Yes. Which is really what we came out of. Yeah. I think the the era where we met really was possibly, you know, the new romantic 
era, yeah. you know, certainly the club scene, which in Leeds at the time was great. Yeah. Um, was, you know, the, the kind of backdrop to that. Because as, as you got closer to the... As you got closer to the mid '80s, when it all kind of, kind of fell away, kind of thing. Yeah, but your your sort of year when it all sort of clicked into place, and I always remember, sort of, I went and even bought the single of "Don't Get Mad, Get Even," um, was the year after the C86 cassette that you also had a track on. But also, it was Kiss that suddenly brought you to the forefront as well, didn't it? You, it, was, it was, yeah, that was the big. I mean, it was one of those records that we made without any great intention really behind it. And it kind of just, apparently a lot of people started phoning in uh, to John Peel. And we'd gotten word of that off the BBC, I seem to remember. And it just, um, we ended up recording a, you know, a, a kind of recorded version at Fon Records. And that all came together kind of in one bundle, you know, Designers Republic. And then the next thing, you know, it, it, it ended up selling like six figures, that record, you know, over a, a, an extended period of time, you know. Yes. Um, and so what I mean is, it, it, in case we recorded that, you know, with three other tracks for a Peel session, what, what I personally think was the best Peel session that we did. And, um, you know, it kind of just, run, it, it kind of, uh, be, it kind of, had a life of its own, I suppose you'd say. I would say indeed. Anyway, that was the first part of my interview with Jeff Taylor from the band. I still got a couple more bits of that interview to go before the hour. Anyway, this is Bible of the Beast. <laughs>
And there you have it, another lot of um, exciting dance music. That was Ada Chance and the track called uh, Bible of the Beats, and I think I probably said Bible of the Beast. It could go either way anyway. That came out as an EP in 1985 and uh, still signed in five. Anyway, this is the second part of my interview with Jeff Taylor from the band when I ask him about the dance scene during the 80s. Well, yeah, I mean, our, um, even be, I'd say before we, we've met each other, we, we, the beginnings of hip-hop was coming out and you know, like I think the club scene, speaking personally, you know, you were hearing a lot of electronic stuff or a fair amount of it that I personally was not familiar with. And it, that was the beginnings of the electro yes. kind of scene, which started to, um, you know, kind of move towards the mid 80s and the hip hop um, era. I mean, 86 was, a, I think, well, the first LL Cool J album, I think, was the beginning of a. Yes. A, a real fertile period for hip hop, which which is when I would date that starting to properly properly seep into the music, you know. Well, yeah, I I remember sort of Peel playing something like um, on the radio. It was a double single, a, a double seven inch, which actually I even went and bought as well, as well as the first uh, Public Enemy album, Yo Bum, yeah. Bum Rush the Show, which again, obviously, you know, it's like, oh yes, he's playing. Um, Tila Scott, so I had to go and buy that, or Roxy Chante, or anybody like that. I just was yeah. absolutely obsessed by it all. So, um, but then your because your image again, you know, did you sort of have a quite 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 a conscious um, idea of what you wanted to look like? Not really, but we didn't. You know, I think we were a group who were guided by what we didn't want to be lumped in with. And there was, there was a lot of bands around Leeds at the time. There was the Goth thing, obviously, and the biggest band in Leeds at that time for quite a while was the sisters. Yes. Um, um, you know, kind of, you know, running their own thing and doing it very well. I would say, uh, the wedding present came along kind of the similar time that we did. Yeah. Uh, three, three Johns. There was, you know, people like Pink Peg Slacks doing a rockabilly thing. Um, and you also had people like Chumbawamba who were there in the lead scene, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah. Yeah. They were kind of, um, you know, Chumbawamba were guys, I think. Well, I only ever met one of them properly. He's a friend of Neil's, I think. Um, but they had been around Leeds. I think, I don't know if they were all were from the Yorkshire area, but they've been around Leeds since, you know, the, the earlier 70s, you know. Yeah, absolutely. So when you were putting the album together, did that come together quite straightforward? This is the one which was 1,000 Years of Trouble. Well, we, you know, we kind of had a bunch of songs um, that we worked up and then, you know, stuff did start to become, we had to think about it in a slightly different way. And I do have a memory of being up at Virgin Records. It's all like slightly hazy, that period, but <laughs> we had to kind of interview people who we wanted to be involved because they're a major record label then. They wouldn't let you record outside of London. You can really see the difference between bands you know, kind of a few years later than us. But, I mean, the record company, we had to record in London. Um, and there was no way that they were going to let us produce it ourselves, which we would have preferred to do. So we, I think we did a co-production thing. with. A, we ended up with a guy called Howard Gray. Right. Um, he was a young guy at the time. We, we talked to him. We, we seemed to be on a similar level, you know. And, um, you know, we ended up with, he came up to Leeds, watched, watched us rehearse. The stuff at rehearsal level was a lot more kind of noisy. 
um, then, you know, on the album, we, you know, we got a lot of different kind of layers of sound in there. But when we were rehearsing, it was just the bare bones songs, you know. Yeah. And, um, you know, we had the Designers Republic thing, um, you know, it, that, all that stuff kind of coalesced at the same time, I would say. Yeah, I mean, and and what I've sort of also found doing this, these interviews and this show is that most bands do have this famous kind of five-year period of getting a few singles out, which kind of surprises them as much as anybody. And then they get on the John Peel show. This was on the, obviously the 80s, and they have the first album, which goes generally well. And then the tour, which is often sort of strange relationships. But by the second album, things are beginning to get quite fray, frayed. So how did you find the kind of that process as you, you know, went from the first of the second album well it, it couldn't have been worse really i mean basically what happened was we did the first album we had to start writing stuff for the second one um we did that like partly in london i think partly in leeds steve for reasons best known to himself um was becoming disaffected with the nature of of being in the band you know yeah. and um he he basically withdrew and um, long story short, we were left with that with an album with no vocalist. Uh, we actually we couldn't have Steve's vocals on the album because he was gone. Um, so we had to look around for another vocalist, which we did in the end. We got a guy called Charlie in. Um, you know, really, it was looking back on it. You know, it. I think me and Neil especially at this kind of romantic idea of our ideas of, um, you know, kind of sonic um, kind of presentation meets, you know, Charlie's voice would be such a great mix, you know, and it could be like a really powerful thing. But in the end, you know, that didn't really work. And uh, we had problems with him personally and um, artistically as well, you know. So what what we ended up doing was having to teach the guy all these new songs, right. kind of and tonally really it wasn't his kind of thing, um, and it, we ended up disappearing up at our backsides with it. I mean, we must have spent two years on those ten songs, and um, you know, Virgin went even pleased with the sleeve, and it was just a mess, you know. God. Yeah, and so, I mean, the whole thing with, I think, it's quite a famous thing with a lot of bands, you know, historically even, like they always say, you know, you get 20-something years probably to make your first album, and um, you get like six months to make your second. Yeah, well, I... I... There's a lot of truth in that, I think. I know, it's a very exciting and sometimes probably frustrating and murky world that is being in a band and trying to keep it together. Anyway, that was the second part of my interview with Jeff. Still two more to go and the hour is creeping up. Anyway, this is going to be Age of Chance and Motor City. In Motor City, you're busy having fun. In Motor City,
And that was Age of Chance and the track called Motor City. This is going to be the third part of my interview with Jeff Taylor from the band when we talk about that exhausting process that is touring, which probably sounds very exciting when you're um, in your late teens and early 20s, but most people grow to hate it. Yeah, I mean, a lot of... Uh, there are some really big people, I think, who've, you know, decided that probably after years of doing it that, you know, it is... I mean, I think, I think with you know, a lot of big names and historically in pop music generally, a record company, I mean, the whole thing with like some of these huge bands, um, you know, I mean, name any one of them, you get an album out and you write the next album on the tour bus or at sound checks. Yes. Um, I mean, that's how a lot of big records, I remember, you know, people like R.E.M. saying that when their stuff was getting really big in the 80s, that was the only time they ever had to write when they were all plugged in together was on stage in a sound check and um really you know um uh, you know a a booking company an agency will get you as many gigs as you say yes to because they don't get paid if you don't play them yeah. so they, they they will work you into the ground yes i mean they don't really care about your physical or mental welfare i don't think a record company does either you know no i think they're just um, looking for the quick buck but so Hell yeah so, so did you have a moment with the band where you sort of said, actually, this is the end? Well, yeah, but that came a long time after um, people would. I mean, basically, we, we, ended, up, we ended on Virgin in 90, 1990 and towards the end of 1990. Um, at the same, I mean, they dropped a lot of people and sold everything over to EMI, who actually own our stuff now. Um, uh, Elvis Costello got dropped, um, yes. which was some small comfort in that for us. Well, um, I think he got picked up again, mine. But um, and then me, Neil, and Jan. I mean, in fact, we were doing this after Steve left. But me, Neil, and Jan used to rehearse together with Jan on vocals. And I've said this before, but we used to we used to again we used to use a drum machine at the time in the rehearsal place in Leeds. We used to use. But we were doing this quite, you know, no pressure to sound like anything. You know, we just were doing stuff off the top of our heads. But with Jan singing. And um, I quite often look back on it now and I have a look at really what was just about to happen with a lot of these kind of bands that were fronted by a girl with a really sweet melodic voice with some quite, you know, huge music behind it. And I remember... But we couldn't really. We had, when it, when Steve left, we really did have to get some kind of a male vocal on there. I don't even remember it being discussed that we we wouldn't do that, you know. Because what happened was we we used to get uh, you get paid from a record company when you um, you get paid in three stages throughout the year, and they suspended our contract until we got another singer. So we did also, we advertised in the Melody Maker. Um, we ended up with like two bin bags full of cassette tapes, which is probably about two weeks of our lives that we'll never get back. Um, I can actually remember doing that. Some some funny ones looking back on it. <laughs> but um, none of them remotely. Because if you say you're a major label act, and we didn't, I, I, can, I remember just placing the ad. Right. It, cost about, it cost about 400 quid at the time. Which was quite a lot of money back then. Oh yeah. And we put, I think we put major label acts um, require vocalist 
I can't remember too much else, but of course, you know, anybody, you know, is going to apply to that just on the off chance that you, you know what I mean? Because you've written major label. We didn't really know how else to stay it um, without mentioning our name, you know. Actually, we, we should have really mentioned our name. <laughs> yeah. we, we might have sorted the sheep from the goats a bit more, you know. Yeah, that must have been quite a mysterious advert. Yeah, not the, you know, I remember it just seemed like the best way to go about it at the time, you know. Yes, excellent, excellent. And then you just saw it, you just, I mean, there must be, you know, I often wonder how a band sort of says this is the end on a sort of, I don't know, is it a legal thing or is it just... You know, do do you just go? This publisher owns this, and this record company owns that. And well, we um, in our case, you know, we we did the the one thing that I personally, my personal philosophy with anything, which I think is what we all did, is we took it as far as it could possibly go. I mean, we weren't one of going to be one of these bands that broke up, falling out over money or drugs. You know, like a lot of you know, I really couldn't live with that if a band. I was in a band, the old fella, it could have been so much better if only we hadn't been taking so many drugs. I would really hate that. But um, me, Neil and Jan carried on doing music, you know, quite religiously after um, after Virgin. And um, just like, you know, doing as a continuation of what we'd been doing. And we released, um, we did a white label of a thing called Slow Motion Riot. And um, that started to shift quite a few copies just on white label. And a big promotions company got behind it. But um, the problem with that was that quite a lot of people had had them on white label first. So it kind of stymied any um, any kind of plan that they would, any schedule they would have for the record. I mean, he only told us that after they'd taken the money off us to promote it. But anyway, um, that still sounds pretty good now, that record. Um, and then we did a track after that with Jan on vocals called She Is Filled With Secrets, which is a line from, well, Twin Peaks, which was only the TV film at the time, you know, yeah. 90, I guess 1990, that would have been, would it? Yeah. Um, but really, you know, after a while, we, we just had to, you know, call it a day really we we just knew that it had run its course and at that point it was 1992 and we've been doing it for 10 years yes because we met in 82 i only really realized that when i look back on it you know and that was my third and penultimate uh, part of the um, interview with jeff taylor from the band this is going to be a quickie this is where i ask him what he would have said to his 18 year old self jeff take it away well i always remember reading um, a line that Joe Strummer said when they the Clash signed to CBS, and I would imagine looking back on it that they had nothing but trouble when they were signed to CBS. I mean, it sounds problematic enough, but the actual from the inside, I would imagine that they had a you know just a lot of trouble getting by. And I remember Joe Strummer particularly saying, you know, that your troubles don't end when you get signed by a major because obviously there's a lot of money involved. That's where your troubles really start, you know. And I remember thinking, yeah, sure, you know. Actually, he was totally right, you know. <laughs> and the, the reality of it is, I mean, when, when we signed to Virgin, we used to get 200 grand a year. So, and to break that down for a minute, we used to get 100,000 off the label. That was our advance. 100,000 off the publishing. But then that's divided between five people. 
which is 40 grand each, then it's taxed. And then you've got to run a business and a band off the back of it. I say five people because the manager takes 20%. Right. So um, then you've got to run, you know, you've got to run, you know, like an office. You've got to run day-to-day paying of things. Um, So, you know, you're not kind of paying yourselves like 900 quid a week. You're paying yourself something very, like, um, sensible so that a lot of the money can be used to to power the what is essentially, I guess, you know, the business part of the band, you know. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, it, it's a bit like a normal person getting their wages, the whole year's wages on January the 1st. <laughs> Which must you be. know what I mean? You've got to manage it. And, you know, it sounds great. And, you know, 200 grand even saying it just sounds fantastic. But when it breaks down, you know, it, it's, um, you know, you'd be a fool to kind of go out blowing it. Yes. But, 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 yeah. but being wise enough not to must be quite an art as well, isn't it? I guess, luckily, you all seem quite sensible people. Well, the thing is that we came out of it with no business um, kind of uh, business ties hanging over us. You know, like everything was neat and tidy at the end of it. Um, well, generally speaking. I mean, we did, but the thing is we ended up owing Virgin a lot. It's only when I, I look back on it now. You know, that's what happens when a a small band signs to a major. They want you to be in debt. The first, I mean, you know, when we did that first album, we were very inexperienced in a large studio. Um, Studios on average were a thousand a day back then. I don't know what the situation would be now. And, you know, we did kind of go over budget somewhat. Well, that's ideal from a record company's point of view because they've actually got you exactly where they want. You know, you're in the red immediately and it's only dawned on me in you know kind of retrospect that that's really the way it's it's stacked up you know and do they then want you to sort of pay the debt off or do they just say that's fine don't worry about it no they they, did that debt needs to be paid off i mean what it meant was we didn't get any royalties and I think they got the debt down to something like 54000 and then wrote it off. But that was well into the 90s, that. <laughs> um, so you don't get any royalties on anything. That just goes to them. It does sound like a very murky world. Anyway, rock and roll. We always think it's going to be so glamorous, but it turns out not to always to uh, be like that when you hear the people who, who were involved. But that, sadly, dear listener, is the end of the show nearly but a big thank you for jeff taylor for giving me the time for that interview from age of chance this has been david eastall on the c86 show this is it really this is the end but um just to say that uh, age of chance were were one of the bands who was on the famous c86 cassette that came out obviously on that year and this was the track that was included on that cassette this is it this is from now on this will be your god <laughs> <laughs> 